You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and we each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach me, Jeff, or Anna at David, Jeff, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live every Thursday at around 1.30, so subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine to get a notification. Just a heads up right now, we're actually going to give them a little bit of a heads up. Next week, we'll be at 2.30. Right, Anna? Dentist appointment. (laughs) Sorry about that, guys. No, but you're, I mean, rightfully so, those dentist appointments, you book like six to eight months in advance, and then they send you the text message two days before. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're going to be here, right? You can't change that now. It's too late. You're in. No, your cleaning is in the next quarter. Yeah. You do. Podcast getting pushed back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jeff, how are you doing this week? Good. Um, got the last piece of pecan pie from the Thanksgiving leftovers coming in, so hopefully I can ride that sugar high all the way through. Whoa! Man. Pre-podcast pecan pie? Absolutely. I, man, I didn't even, I didn't get a pecan pie this year, and I like, for the first year, I've considered trying to make one, because I just, I need it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would have shared some if I knew that's what I did, what, is like, at. Is the dirty plate still around? No. <laughs> Licked clean. Oh, man. Well, before we get started with our first story this week, we have a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm David Manti, and I want you to register now for a new video podcast on how manufacturers are using augmented reality. Joining me is Mike Bradford, and he's going to talk about how, if anything, augmented reality makes manufacturers seem more tech savvy. How's that working, Mike? The image of manufacturing quite often, particularly in younger younger employees, is just, it's not cool, it's dirty, it's whatever. Uh, with the use of HoloLens or other technologies to do augmented reality, all of a sudden this is new technology. It's fun to use, it's exciting, it's interesting, and it gives manufacturers a much more tech-savvy and interesting image, particularly for younger workers. And we're back. And that video podcast is coming up next week, December 8th at 1 p.m. So make sure to register in the link in the live chat or the link below. Join us. Ask questions. Join the live Q&A. Harass me there as well. You guys find me everywhere. And uh, we'll talk about augmented reality and how manufacturers are using it now and using it to prepare for the future, particularly when it comes to new talent acquisition. Let's jump into our first story this week. Automaker floats minimalist convertible concept. GAC Group, the fifth largest automaker in China, recently opened its first design studio in Europe, and to make a splash, it unveiled an unusual concept vehicle. The GAC Barchetta is a maroon electric roadster that is an homage to Italian sports cars from the 1970s. Some say it looks more like a large warehouse robot. The design is ultra-minimalist, with a flat chassis and compact batteries. The simple exterior is aluminum, and the interior is a steering wheel 
and little else. The vehicle is a two-seater with seats made from recycled materials that are suspended from a lightweight shell. The wheels are hollow and anchored by triangular steel bars, but what has people talking is that the Barchetta doesn't have a roof or a windshield. When you're not driving it, a panel hidden in the dash actually slides over the seats for protection. Not many details exist, but Jeff, it's a concept car. And when it comes to concept cars, I think this one accomplished what GAC was hoping it would. It did. Okay. It is a concept car. It's more than anything else. It's a promotional vehicle. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're trying to get the word out. This is some of the cool things we can do from an engineering perspective. And I get that. And there were some interesting takeaways in terms of how they're, I think they say they're trying to pattern the design almost after a cell phone, which you can kind of appreciate Hmm. when you're looking at trying to improve battery density and to hold a charge longer. They also talked about compressing the size of the batteries, which is important when we look at long-term about EVs. But I guess to put my curmudgeon hat on a little bit here for you, David. Put it on. um, I was kind of, I wasn't mad. I was just kind of (laughs) disappointed in GAC here because they didn't really offer anything that looked at a bigger picture solution in terms of Mm -hmm. some of the stuff that we need for EVs. We've seen a ton of these different concept cars that are electric vehicles that offer different design stuff that are more performance focused, which is what they were trying to do here. I get that. But I also would have liked to see them come out and be more transparent with, we think this design is going to be lighter weight. So Mm -hmm. the battery won't have to charge as long. We think compressing the size of the batteries is going to lead to this type of improvement. We think the types of batteries we're developing will lead to longer um, drive times between charging. They didn't come out with any of that stuff. It was just like, hey, look at this super weird design we have. We didn't put a windshield on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, again, I get what they're trying to do, which is why I ain't mad. (laughs) I just wish they would have uh, tried to at least address some of these bigger issues because – we do have that with EVs right now. If they could have come out with something that said also, and granted, a two-seater is not something that the more economically focused customer is going to go for. Mm-hmm. Right. But if they could have said something along with the lines of this lighter weight body, it's going to keep costs down because we know all those tax credits went away for a bunch of buyers or yeah. something. I was just looking yeah. for a different hook to help move the platform forward. And mm-hmm. I didn't really see it. Yeah. A hook beyond the cool factor. Is it cool though? I think it's I mean, it's, it definitely grabbed my eye. I was like, because the first time, the first photo I saw, I didn't even think I was looking at a car. Okay, I'll give you that. Again, <laughs> as a concept, it definitely <laughs> caught your eye. Yep. But the, at first, when you're just thinking about, you know, a concept car, again, offering a different perspective, I don't know. I haven't heard anybody complain about a roof or a windshield. No, yeah. I like having a roof. Yeah. Uh, Anna, I mean, quite the controversial take there. Um, <laughs> both a roof and a windshield. <laughs> Um, obviously this isn't something that is uh, going to be seen on the road anytime soon. What were your thoughts when it came to a concept car and getting GAC's name out there? Yeah. I mean, I agree largely with Jeff on what he said. It was interesting because, um, I, I sent a link to you guys earlier in this week about another concept vehicle that Stellantis had unveiled, um, as part of its, it's like an Italian design unit, um, called Lancia, uh, that was also like not a car. Mm-hmm. It just was like this floating, very sleek floating blob. It was a flo- like a floating wafer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I agree with Jeff that the, this this is not for consumers, right? Like yeah. this is just. I, I wonder if we're seeing more of this sort of over the top design concept stuff as these automakers are struggling to compete over resources. I know that there's a massive need, especially in automotive, for. Design engineers, most notably amid 
these full portfolio shifts that these companies are doing. I mean, it's not just about redesigning a body every couple of years. It's like major upheavals, killing multiple models every year, dumping billions into EVs, self-driving, safety. Um, you know, there's worker shortages everywhere. Engineers have always been in short supply uh, and they deal specifically with burnout, I think, probably more than other professions. So maybe these companies are just putting out this call kind of to the brightest minds and showing off their design chops, which isn't new, right? Mm -hmm. But I think previously, maybe you saw some more practical prototypes, <laughs> like that, you know, like this thing that no roof, the Lancia thing had no wheels. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I look like a computer mouse guy. <laughs> like, I, you you can't tell me that those types of announcements are for consumers. They're too right. abstract. They don't make any sense. They're building a buzz for investment. They're building a buzz for talent, in my opinion. Um, to Jeff's point, I think there are so many practical needs out there for vehicles like that. That this doesn't play to at all. And so I think that's sort of exhausting from a consumer standpoint to be like, all right, like, but but GAC is doing a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. they they've had a plug-in hybrid since like 2017. They have a full portfolio of EVs. Um, they have joint ventures with like Honda, Toyota, Mitsubishi. So I mean, they have a lot on their plate. I think it's pretty impressive that they're also engaging in a little bit of showmanship here to try to maybe generate some interest from a talent side. No, uh, you raise a good point about attracting young talent because the first time I saw the design, I thought it was, it reminded me of something I saw on Instagram from a freelance industrial design student or a young industrial design professional. And we have been seeing more exotic designs like that. So you raise a really good point about trying to maybe catch the eye of young engineers and trying to bring them in house. It was also one of the things that wasn't shared is that this was, they were opening a new design studio in Milan. Maybe they're trying to recruit there very mm -hmm. specifically, get a few more engineers in house. I did think that it gave us a promising look at current advance advancements recycled materials being used for car interiors and also some new uh, tire technology. It reminded me of the Fisker ocean SUV concept interior that's made entirely with plastic bottles and old t-shirts. Mm -hmm. They want to, they're the ones that want to make a completely recyclable car. Um, it also made me think of the story recovered with Bridgestone making rubber out of natural desert shrubs. Yeah. But that that's where kind of to Jeff's point, it was a lot of what we're already seeing now Whereas with concepts, like I, I wanted something like when Goodyear came out with the morphing tire tread yeah. and they're just like, this is a 3D printed car with tires that will morph based on what you're driving. I'm like, okay, <laughs> that is something cool that I could look yeah. forward to. But to the one point, it did make me look at GAC's lineup, which I had never done before. Yeah. Right? And actually some of those cars were pretty cool looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's one of the things with these concept cars is it's just, they come out blow your mind. You're like, whoa, really cool. You go to their website and you're like, oh, it's a sedan. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> a little sedan. hatchback on there. Um, so at what point are these concepts just too misleading about the car maker's pedigree and the future they're going in? I don't think they're misleading. Okay. Um, I think because they, they do have that label, it's very clear. It's a concept. Um, I mean, they didn't I mean, even the video that they showed, you could tell it was, yeah. you know, it wasn't real or whatever. Rendering heavy. Yeah. So like I said, that part, that part of it is I'm cool with all that. Yeah. I just wish there was more, a little more meat on the bone. Yeah. I guess I, I'm thinking of it more from a recruiting talent standpoint. Oh, okay. You put this out there and you're like, check this out. We can make this. This is what we actually make. <laughs> yeah. This is what we actually make. But, you know, one day maybe. 
Yeah. I mean, that is a good call about recruiting talent too. That is something I didn't really think about, but if you're looking to attract the cream of the crop and stand out, yeah, this type of stuff will definitely help with that. Our next most popular story, Caterpillar successfully demonstrates first battery electric large mining truck. Caterpillar recently held a successful demonstration of its first battery electric 793 large mining truck. The company developed the prototype with support from key mining companies like BHP, Newmont, Rio Tinto, and Tech Resources Limited. Tinto. That's where that came from last week. The partners, at least it's a real thing. (laughs) The partners are part of CAT's early learner program that launched in 2021. The program helps spur collaboration between Caterpillar and industry stakeholders as the industry, quote, undergoes transformational change through the energy transition. During a recent event, the prototype battery truck took to a 4.3-mile course. Fully loaded at its rated capacity, the truck achieved a top speed of 37.3 miles per hour and traveled 0.62 miles up a 10% grade at 7.5 miles per hour. The truck also went 0.62 miles at a 10% downgrade or a downhill grade, capturing the energy that would normally be lost to heat and regenerating that energy to the battery. After everything, the truck still had enough battery energy to perform additional complete cycles. The prototype truck was built at Caterpillar's Tucson Proving Ground in Green Valley, Arizona. They're calling it the mine site of the future, using a variety of renewable energy sources. The idea is to implement the same sustainable solutions that mining companies could use at their own operations to learn firsthand what it could take to run an electrified mine site. Anna, I was surprised by a number of things with this story. One, I mean, I get that it's cat and anything cat is normally in our top five. Mm-hmm. Our, this, uh, the manufacturing audience, kind of like John Deere, they're watching everything that Caterpillar does. Yeah. But your thoughts on the mining truck... And also sort of the revolutionary work or potentially revolutionary work that they're doing at this new testing site. Yeah. um, Well, I would definitely like to first speak to um, the level of skepticism in the comments that we received on this story. Um, (laughs) You're right. It was a very popular story. And as you said, Caterpillar is always very high interest for our audience. Um, I don't think the word sellout was quite used, but um, that was the vibe I was getting from yeah. the commentary. <laughs> my, my comment was loud skepticism, hopefully supplemented by the quietly encouraged. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Loud skepticism. Um, I, I think what some of the naysayers here are failing to consider is that the eventual customer for this truck is not just one company in a vacuum. It's one company that's linked significantly with an entire supply chain with their own ESG goals. Mm-hmm. Whether agree you agree with it or not, there is pressure coming from all sides here, from suppliers to customers to shareholders. Like, don't forget about all those commitments that are being made by these big companies to reduce their carbon footprint. How are they going to do that? CAT ex- itself has pledged to reduce emissions by 30% by 2030. Um, if they can do that across their supply chain, these companies, and they're putting immense pressure on applications that are low-hanging fruit. And that's these very carbon-intensive industries like agriculture, like mining, like construction, which Caterpillar tends to have a big footprint in. So I think Cat sees a massive opportunity here, and you cannot fault them for that. (laughs) And they've been pursuing this for many years. So um, 
the company sees the writing on the wall and they can't afford to be last to market with a solution that makes achieving an ESG goal easier for their customers and they're not going to. Um, So I guess whatever you think about the honesty of their intentions, I don't think it really matters. The market is asking for this and will continue to do so based on what these companies need to achieve, you know? Technology like this is a lot more market ready and and soon to be available than some of the other solutions that are still in the development phase for construction techniques, green construction, green materials, stuff like that. Um, so uh, it, to me, this was like the next logical step for them. I don't see how they miss this market opportunity. So uh, again, like if if people find it to be disingenuous of Cat to like get into this field, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't care. I mean, that's just that they have to do that, Jeff. Is Caterpillar just pandering to the green crowd? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I yeah. mean, and sincerely, first of all, you look at this article and I was glad it made the top five. I thought this was going to be an in case you missed it, especially once I got into all the other things that it talks about here. Mm-hmm. So starting with the truck, first of all, the size. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it's incredible when you see that. I love when they do these pictures when there's people involved. Yeah, so you can really huge. Get, get scale. Yeah, it's I massive. Mean, it's three people. The tires are three people tall. I know. It looks like there's a kindergarten class at a field trip. <laughs> yeah. These I, are adults. Kneeling. Kneel, yeah. yeah. Or something. Yeah, yeah. it is. A, it's a massive. So the, the thing, when I first saw this, I was kind of like, okay, great. Because whenever we talk about these huge electric vehicles, they're still plugging into something mm-hmm. to power the batteries. So at a mining facility, mining site, they're either plugging into the grid. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a grid, you're still looking at 60 to 70% of that coming from coal or another fossil fuel. Or they're plugging into a generator, which is most often driven, again, by gas, some sort of fossil fuel. So the takeaway there, the, the gains in terms of emissions and fossil fuel usage, it's, it's basically a wash because you're, you're not really making any gains. Mm-hmm. But what's great here is when you look at this Tucson Proving Grounds and everything else they're doing there. Because mm-hmm. the biggest issue right now that we have with lithium-ion batteries powering electric vehicles is mining. Yeah. The actual operation of extracting those minerals from the earth. <clears throat> That's the problem. And at this proving ground, what they're trying to do is implement a lot of different technologies using cleaner energy technologies to make mining less environmentally disruptive. Mm-hmm. So when you look at some of the stuff that they're working on there, green hydrocarbon, or excuse me, green hydrogen production, natural gas and 100% hydrogen reciprocating engine power generation, fuel power generation, different fuel cells, renewable energy sources like wind and solar. Mm -hmm. So if you can take all of this stuff and you can actually make the mining site clean Mm -hmm. and using all of these different options and then use that to get the materials out that you need for the lithium ion batteries, we're getting better with producing these things in terms of taking a lot of the energy costs out of the production process. And then we can at the same time see some of the continued advances we've seen in wind and solar all of a sudden we can actually see some net gains from mm-hmm. using lithium ion batteries and the processes that we need to do to extract those minerals in creating them because hydrogen's great. Yeah. But I think the long-term use of hydrogen is in developing fuel cells that can scale up to potentially become at a utility type level at some yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. It's going to start at a facility. It's going to start at a mining location, but that's what we can grow on and talking mm-hmm. about, I, I just think this article and this site, forget the truck, yeah. Just everything else they're doing there, it is the stuff that leads to the bigger stuff. Mm-hmm. It really is. So that's what got me excited about this article. The truck's the first step. It's what gets yeah. you the headlines. The other thing that was cool is we're talking about Caterpillar. We're talking about Rio Tinto, some of these <laughs> other big mining operations. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that's where we need to come from. Because we can talk about you know the Biden administration and governments getting involved in incentives and all that. No, it's going to come from companies figuring yeah. stuff out on their own without all that governance or accountability or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. To Anna's point, 
it's market driven right now. What I liked, and I had all the future tech that they have on site being very promising as well. What I liked is that they're not just picking one winner. You know, they're not just doing solar. They're not just doing wind. They're not just doing green hydrogen production. They're not just doing 100% hydrogen reciprocating engine power generation, which I looked up and I still don't understand. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's been a mistake in other markets where they've tried to pick a green energy and go forward with it. Where this proving ground is just trying to figure out what's going to work. And I really like that approach. Yeah, it just seems so scalable. They're mm-hmm. starting with mining and let's go from there. I like that a lot. Well, and we used to have some colleagues that were in um, this specific, you know, off highway uh, market segment and they were able to go to these proving grounds. And apparently they are amazing. Really? In person. Yeah, just because even to Jeff's point, when you look at that photo, it's hard to even wrap your head around seeing these trucks maneuver around. Because, I mean, you hear 37 miles per hour and you're not, you're like, okay, it's kind of quick. But when you're driving through a mine (laughs) and it's the size of a building, that's impressive. Exactly. All right. Our next most popular story. Boring is bailing on U.S. projects. The Boring Company has been anything but. The tube technology has made some interesting choices in the past, particularly its unconventional fundraising, selling flamethrowers, and perfume that smells like burnt hair. Well, a new report from the Wall Street Journal says boring often balks when it comes to sealing the deal. The article details a number of times boring flirted with the major infrastructure project, only to back out quietly. For example, in January 2020, officials in Ontario, California, were looking to build a light rail connection from Ontario, Ontario International Airport to a train station four miles away. The project had a $1 billion price tag. Boring stepped in, unsolicited, and said they'd do it using an underground tunnel and autonomous EVs for $45 million. Well, when it came time to formalize the deal, which had ballooned to about $500 million, Boring ghosted the community. New phone. Who dis? <laughs> the company has done the same in Chicago, L.A., and Maryland. Officials say that part of the problem is that Boring struggles with bureaucracy, like permits and environmental reviews. The company's lone functioning tunnel is a 1.6-mile loop under the Las Vegas Convention Center that one of our colleagues last week described to me as a gimmick. Still, the company raised $675 million this spring that valued the company at around $5.7 billion. Anna. Are you bored of Boring's antics? <laughs> Who called it a gimmick? Um, Tom. <laughs> no, uh, we uh, <clears throat> we were at the convention center for a show. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't even occur to me that it was underneath, and I was just walking from the hotel over. It's not that long of a walk. He went into the tunnel where you have drivers in cars that take you from like the south end of the tunnel to the north end where we were. Um, and, you know, it seems also like a very claustrophobic experience because they, I mean, uh-huh. they make yeah, a tunnel, it's it's but it's tight. just enough to get that car through. And I don't know. It was, so it was uh, when I asked for an honest opinion of it, he, he just said, said it's a good gimmick. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I'll get to boring in a minute, but I just want to kick off with uh, this. Um, And I've said this before, but (laughs) Elon Musk's 
public facing persona is having real tangible impact on his companies. Mm -hmm. And um, the brand damage that I read about recently had to do with Tesla and how um, Tesla's net favorability rating uh, has plummeted since November. (laughs) And it it has reached net unfavorable for the first time. And uh, apparently it's a culmination of like slower trends downward over the past two years. Um, maybe brash predictions, uh, autopilot drama, recalls, whatever. But then I think the Twitter thing now. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to boring. Um, the. <laughs> it was actually a much larger. That's just a soft. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's relevant to w- to what I want to say about this specific situation. I think the origins of the company sound a little capricious now, looking back. Um, and I think the Twitter situation has people a little bit at least questioning Elon Musk's business acumen. Um, so what comes next for this company? I don't know. Um, you they, you talk about these problems with due diligence, um, the paperwork, mm-hmm. the granularity of infrastructure. <laughs> and the track record thus far suggests to me that boring is a cool idea and concept, but fails in execution. Not to mention the concept itself failed, I think, already in concept because it was supposed to be kind of a different thing, right? It was supposed to involve Hyperloop and all that stuff. Now it's just like a below ground highway. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this makes a difference enough to be tangible, like, and outweigh the costs, the safety risks, you know, all that stuff. Um, To me, it's more and more evidence indicating that some of these Musk ventures are just really cool on paper and maybe aren't as practical as we want to believe. And when you look at like the Elizabeth Holmes and the Sam Bankman Freeds and the Adam Newmans of the world, I think we also have um, evidence of a problem with venture capital and a lack of due diligence there. Mm -hmm. And if you have a very enigmatic or charismatic business leader, they will get handed a stack of cash and sometimes they wind out out like wind up out of their league very quickly and i believe that is what is happening with boring company i don't think that he is qualified to be doing these infrastructure projects uh, clearly there's a problem there in the follow through um and i just think maybe it's just not working yeah um and unfortunately uh, you know it's not just an elon musk problem it is a problem in my opinion with venture capital because to me this was never a good idea yeah. and um People just went with it because Elon Musk. You know? See, for me, I did, you know, he said he was going to buy a tunnel boring machine and start digging. And then at the time, it seemed like a publicity stunt, but then yeah. he actually did it. And I I bought in. I still somewhat buy in, but I also admit that maybe I fell for the hype because I do think we do have a problem with transportation that needs to be solved. We And Jeff will probably talk about supply chain implications as well because we got a problem with supply chain. And I do believe that maybe this underground infrastructure could be a cure for some of those problems. Um, but I do think that uh, when it comes to the bureaucratic red tape, some, some suggested on the website to just cut the red tape, right? Help with the environmental studies. But it seems to be more like they have this mentality of a frustrated child. You know, like, mm-hmm. I want to do this project. I want to do it for this much, and we're going to do it exactly like this. And then the city comes back, and they say, okay, we want to do this with you. But this is how we do it. You yeah. know? And, I mean, they just say, no, we're going to do it this way, or gone. And they leave. You know, you need more of a business partner, and I think that's where maybe boring was failing here, where they're like, 
we're going to come in, we're going to tell you what we're going to do, and we're going to do it exactly that way. And if we get any pushback, we're gone. Well, and it's not like small considerations when you're in California and need to know what happens if there's an earthquake yeah. and you're underground. You know what I mean? Like that's, these are very real, like you can't cut that red tape out of this process. No, agreed. Jeff, what were your thoughts? And I get it. It's uh, we're look we're looking at Musk and his companies through a different lens right now, just because one of his bigger swings was a a miss. You know, well, he's definitely getting some scrutiny from a couple of different perspectives. First of all, people have always challenged him on the engineering elements or the promises that he's made here in terms of timelines, costs, capabilities. But they do offer a number of different, I guess you could call them products or offerings or types of tunnels mm-hmm. in terms of depending on what you want. And that's where I do think there is opportunity. I think everybody sort of stepped away from the Hyperloop concept yeah. in terms of customer transportation or, or individual transportation. But like you alluded to, I still think there's a ton of opportunity for freight and product. I do think there's an opportunity for utility lines. We have ongoing um, conflict around here about like telephone poles and lines and power lines mm-hmm. and stuff like that. People want them underground versus on the, the post going next to the highway. Mm-hmm. So there's opportunities here. The part that I am confused about, and actually – According to all the different financial sites that I could look at, Boring brings in about $2.7 million in revenue a year. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're selling flamethrowers. I don't know if they're getting a cut of like tickets from the Las Vegas tunnel. Yeah. Not sure where it's coming from. But they also employ, when you talk about, don't have the technical expertise or, or Musk doesn't, they have 200 people working at this company. Yeah. By the way, they also have about two dozen job openings that they're looking for people. None in communications, shockingly. <laughs> or government yeah. compliance yep. or anything like that. So- what I don't understand is they don't like working with government. Okay, that's that's obvious. Mm-hmm. But if you are going to get into this situation, you, that should have been obvious beforehand. Yeah, the boring company doesn't exist outside of the government. You don't fix infrastructure. Right. I mean, but I guess I can understand why they would think that way because they did it with aerospace. <clears throat> they did it with SpaceX, sort of trying to cut out the government. But I mean... But there's there's no infrastructure in space. Right. There's one in the ground. <laughs> yes. okay? I mean, yeah. there's there's lots of stuff down there to be aware of. The other thing I don't understand is he lost, talking about Elon Musk, billions of dollars mm-hmm. before Tesla went profitable. Mm-hmm. There are people who obviously are behind this. He just got okay. an infusion of what, $700 million, yeah. $600 million earlier this year? People are behind this. Mm-hmm. Take a hit, man. I mean, do one of these projects. If you're sold on it and you think you can do this, do one of these projects. Take a $500 million loss because if it works out, guess what? They're oh, going to yeah. be lining up to do these. Mm-hmm. So take the loss like you did with Tesla. It's still going to be a fraction of the money you lost before. And if it doesn't work, cut bait and move on. Because right now there's a lot of SpaceX employees who are very frustrated by the fact that he's borrowing money from SpaceX and Tesla yeah. to support Boeing or mm-hmm. Boring, excuse me. Yeah. Not the Boeing company. Not Boeing. Yeah. This is the Boring company <laughs> to support Boring and the 200 plus employees there. So like I said, do t- apply the same principle. You were not afraid to lose money on Tesla. Lose a fraction of it here. Mm-hmm. Do something have a proof of concept, and if it doesn't work, get out. I mean, and they did the same thing with SpaceX because they saw the opportunity. I mean, infrastructure projects right now are balloon, the cost balloon to almost insurmountable amounts, and then uh, the infrastructure projects rarely go through. I mean, they walked away when it became a $500 million project, but that's still down from a billion. You know, that's still a cost savings that if you could realize that for other communities would be quite the carrot. The company... I mean, obvious, it's obvious that the company, if anything, likes to make a splash. And it was this fanfare or kind of many workers or ex-city officials said it was like the sex appeal of working with Elon Musk in one of his companies 
that drew these cities into yeah. the deep end. Yeah. Um, and so you just need to ride that wave. And I think you're right, Jeff. I think you need to take a risk, a risk and do something a little bit more complicated than, you know, Tesla's with Uber drivers underneath the convention center. Right. If we are like stacking highways on top of each other forever until we die, is that what we're doing? Like, I feel like this could be done in a better way. That's my opinion. Agreed. Well, it's, uh, you know, once you're on that third or fourth level of yeah. elevated highway, you're just like, I don't see the ground anymore yeah. and I'm not comfortable. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm in the, on top of the earth's core right now, <laughs> driving. Yeah. I will be. <laughs> Right. It's an, it's a mild commute, but you have to go 10 miles high just to get around <laughs> just to get in town. All right. Our most second most popular story, right? Yeah. We're on second most. You're there. Ford suggests turning off the heat in your F-150 Lightning this winter. The F-150 Lightning launched this year and has been a surprising success. Now the automaker, his first full-size electric truck is heading into the first winter and the company has some caveats. On Black Friday, Ford published tips to help maximize the range of your F-150 Lightning in cold weather during its first winter. One tip suggests using heated seats and steering wheels as primary heat to reduce HVAC energy. That's right, they said use your heated seats and steering wheels, not the heat, not the heat in the car. Ford also warned that temperatures below 40 degrees Fahrenheit can slow down battery fluids and limit power output. The company also suggested parking the F-150 in a garage whenever possible and keeping it plugged in when parked. The company said preconditioning the vehicle by warming the battery while plugged in uh, could also help during a longer drive. The Ford F-150 has an estimated range of 320 miles and can be used as a backup battery source for up to three days. Jeff, just as long as the temperature isn't below 40 degrees. Yeah, I guess when I, you know, looked at the video and, and read through the information, I didn't feel like this was that big of a deal, mm -hmm. um, what they were putting out here, because any piece of equipment, when you put it in cold weather, it's not <laughs> going to be as efficient. Like, I know. that's kind of common sense. All of this stuff would apply to an internal combustion engine as well. Mm -hmm. So it just becomes a bigger dynamic for, for good reason. Obviously, mm -hmm. when you're talking about a battery and there's still that that little bit of paranoia or problem solution issue in the back of people's minds in terms of, I'm going to run out of charge. I don't have oh, enough yeah. power to get where I want to go. And I get that because, you know, when I drive to work every day, it's a 15 minute drive. I go past eight gas stations. So mm -hmm. the fact that my miles per gallon drops by one or two when the temperature drops and I'm running the defroster, the heater, that's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. I get how that can be a bigger deal when you're talking about electric range, yeah. when you're talking about a range on electric vehicle. So putting this information out from Ford, I think it makes sense. It's making sure people are aware, hey, when it's cold, your vehicle's gonna not going to run as efficiently. Here's some ways to make that charge last longer. I get that, especially you know around the holidays, people are going longer distances, all that stuff. I think it's just keeping that front of mind. It's a different operating dynamic with an electric vehicle, and it would be easy to dismiss or forget or put out of mind, especially because it's a truck. You think it's kind of indestructible at right. times. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I think it was actually pretty smart by Ford. I could see how some of this was maybe taken the wrong way. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it was just a reminder of a lot of things that I would call common sense. One quote that I pulled from their uh, announcement was, as F-150 Lightning customers begin their first winter with their new electric pickup, Ford wants to help make them aware that in low temperatures, they could see a significant reduction in range, which is normal. 
just put it right out there. Like, this is all normal. But mm-hmm. Anna, for whatever reason, this turned out to be a real I told you so sort of rallying point for some people. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I agree with Jeff that um, obviously there's a lot of stuff that's just being disregarded about the similar performance hit you would get from a gasoline engine in very cold weather. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh these types of PSAs might have the unfortunate result of people putting EVs into the non-starter yeah. basket, yeah. which is um, unfortunate because I think as public perception around EVs is improving, it's still quite tenuous. And so anything like this um, being overblown or taking, it just, it does not help. I don't think that yeah. we're, by any means we're like solidly secure in the public's overall acceptance of electrics. Um, you know, we know there's a cold weather penalty on EV battery efficiency, but the devil is in the detail. So EVs typically lose about 12% of their range um, in cold weather. So about 38 miles on a 320 mile range F-150, for example. It's really not that much. The issue that you have, that's the the key difference between the EV and the gasoline engine is when you have that heat on full blast. Mm -hmm. Because with a gasoline engine, you're recirculating some of that engine heat. You don't have that in in a battery-powered car. So um, the hit, if you had your heat on full blast, can get to up to 40%, which is significant, right? But that's still giving you on this nice long-range battery about 200 miles on a battery. And that's full blast heat the entire time. That's still a decent range, I would say, for um, for considering that most people drive like 40, 30 miles yeah. per day, right? Mm, yeah. So for most people, this is not going to be a problem. They can run their heat and they can still get to and from, no big deal. But to your point, like if you're a contractor and you're driving all over the place in a day, yeah, it's something that you need to consider. And all they're saying is, be prepared, understand what you're dealing with because you might not get that 320, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I agree that using my seat warmer <laughs> as a heater in my car, that would be my worst nightmare oh, in the God. Midwest. Yeah. Like it's freezing in your car, you know? Well, it's also, I, I don't use the seat warmers because that gives me a false sense of how warm the car is. And then I remember there are two very small, del- delicate bodies in the back seats that need the warmth, you know, it's, I'm, I'm going to need a little bit more than seat warmers and a steering wheel warmer to keep the kids warm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so I, I guess the problem is like, I don't see this improving market perception and you wonder how the automakers and the battery makers will be adjusting to this reality because to date, I think the number of EV purchases in more like mild temperate climates. It's just, there's been a lot more there versus like in the heart of the Midwest, there's just not as many EVs being sold here. That's a fact. Um, I do think that there has to be some effort towards whatever systematic development has to be made to kind of make this work better. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you tell people that your battery is going to be only 60% effective if you live in Chicago, then I think that takes it out of commission for a lot of people. So, and I am very much pro EV and I live in Wisconsin, <laughs> which is very cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. But, um, but again, like it, I think the, the automakers do need to at some point speak to this and say, this is what we're doing. Here's our plan. Cause I don't think that this can go on forever with people without people pushing back on it. We're getting flashes though of that cold. Lately, getting flashes uh, of it. Yesterday, what? Yeah. November? Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. Ugh. I've said it before, but I'm just really glad I picked a seat by a window. <laughs> One of the tips that Ford offered was when charging, 
turn off the heater if possible, or lower the temperature enough to remain comfortable. And at first, I didn't really understand what they were trying to say, but it reminded me of the importance of EV infrastructure being a bit different than just traditional gas stations as Mm -hmm. we think about them. Because we, you know, right now in the cold, when we have to gas up, it takes, what, 30 seconds, maybe a minute, depending on the size of your tank. You can either deal with the cold or it's not that long with your car off that you really get cold. But so if you're using the F-150 Lightning has the ability to DC fast charge from 15% to 80% in 41 minutes, which works out to about 54 miles of charge in 10 minutes. So even imagine just being at a gas station for 10 minutes to get the like minimum charge. That is a long time sitting in a non-heated car. And it just made me think we're going to need to rethink, you know, gas stations are going to have to be more like a, not a community center, but more someplace that people want to hang out. Yes and no. I think most of this, the bulk of the charging takes place overnight. Yeah. At yeah, the end but of I'm your saying, day. True. But I'm saying if you are caught and you need to charge this on the road, you need, it's going to take a minute. It's going to take yeah. 10 minutes, says David. Yeah. Go, well, to, I mean, go, go to the bathroom and get some corn nuts. Like I tell me you couldn't spend a half an hour quick trip. Come on. I mean, depending on my level of intoxication, sure, I could spend a lot longer in there. <laughs> I but- agree. No, but like to Jeff's point, like if if you had the op- if you had a way to fuel your gas vehicle at your home, well, you yeah. would do it there, right? Yeah. There's you would never go to a gas station again. I suppose. Um, I suppose things would change that way. It just. Um, and you're right. You can kill 10 minutes in a gas station. I was also talking about, you know, obviously I was a passenger in that sort of scenario. Of um, <laughs> but <clears throat> I, I just thought if you were stuck or if you wanted to take it on the on a road trip, you know. Well, that's what's in the back of everybody's mind with the EVs. And that's sort of the prevailing fear, if you will, that yeah. prevents a lot of people. So the other thing that I would sort of remind Everybody about is this is Gen One here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, this yeah. is the first one. So yeah, these there's going to be some of these hiccups, but buckle up. This is where we're going. Buckle okay? up, so says Jeff. It out. I don't think you know F one fifty has what two years worth of pre orders already. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this makes many people walk away. No. All right. Well, Seth and the crew are watching. Hi, Seth and the crew. Who's the crew? Oh. oh, oh! it's a baby. The crew. the crew is a baby. Oh, man. <laughs> Was it Silas? Osiris. How you doing, Osiris? Hi, buddy. Yeah, you're doing great. He is enamored with you on the screen there. He is <laughs> transfixed. He isn't sure what he's looking at, mm-hmm. but he's going to keep an eye on it. Osiris, just be like my kids and hug the screen when you miss daddy. All right. Our most popular story this week. Plant fires thousands of workers in late night text. Happy Thanksgiving. Two days before the holiday, some 2,700 workers at United Furniture Industries in Mississippi received a text or email from their employer. They were terminated, effective immediately. The company said that the, quote, said that, quote, due to unforeseen business circumstances, it was forced to terminate all of its employees. Within days, employees filed a class action lawsuit for potential Warrant Act violations, which says that companies need to give a 60-day heads up for mass firings. If this isn't possible, the workers are said to be owed 60 days of severance pay. However, United Furniture told workers that all employment and benefits would be immediately terminated with no provision from COBRA. The company has had a rough year, 
270 workers lost their jobs when the company closed a plant in North Carolina, and another 220 were cut previously in Mississippi. Anna, this is just a terrible start to a holiday week, and it really disrupted many families in the area. Ugh, and I just really struggle to understand how it ever came down to this, mm-hmm. where in the middle of the night, you're telling people not to come to work the next day. Like, things are so dire, you can't even pay them one more day so some executive or manager could stand there and look them in the eye and tell them mm-hmm. that they're losing their jobs. It was just, like, super gutless and sad and terrible in every way. And what's strange here was, to me, it was a pretty clear-cut case of Warren Act violation, and they did it in such a way that it was very unlikely that they would not be called on it because Mm -hmm. it was so heartless and weird that obviously it got some media attention. Workers themselves didn't expect it, so people were very upset, and, you know, lawyers are just kind of waiting for this sort of thing to be like, hey, yeah, I got (laughs) you. Second, who is the second email from, right? Exactly. Like, you know, I, it, people were, they were prepared for this, right? So um, secondly, like not only will they be obligated to pay 60 days of pay and benefits if they're found in violation, but the class action lawsuit plaintiffs could also be awarded their legal fees. Um, the defendant can be required to pay penalties uh, every single day of the violation until they pay up. Um, that said... Uh, I was struck when I saw that the words unforeseen business circumstances were used here because these exact exact words um, are can be used uh, by a business as a defense for violating the terms of the Warren Act. So um, it was certainly not ac- accidental that they used those words specifically. There are a few defenses for businesses that can potentially result in an exemption. Um, from compliance to this, one is if an employer can prove that unforeseen business circumstances led to their abrupt layoffs and that they were not reasonably foreseeable. So according to the law firm Claire Harrison Harvey Brandsburg, in order for a business to claim this exemption, the employer must show that the circumstances were sudden, dramatic, unexpected, and outside of the employer's control. And... To be honest, if you look at the layoffs throughout the year for them, um, I think it might be a tall order for them to prove that they could not see this coming. Yeah. The only defense was the quote from one worker that I saw where he had mentioned they were invested. You know, it seemed like things were ramping up. So Mm -hmm. he was really blindsided when this happened. How does the Warren Act come into play if the company, because the company is expected to either file for Chapter 7 Mm -hmm. or Chapter 11 bankruptcy, how does the Warren Act play into that? I mean, if they file, file Chapter 7, are they kind of off the hook on any, anything? I don't know how that works, um, but I do know that obviously if these provisions did not exist, then it would be very difficult for employees to move on from these types of circumstances. So, If they go Chapter 7, that means they're liquidating everything yeah, to pay off their creditors. Mm-hmm. There's a pending lawsuit against them or a judgment against them. That becomes one of the creditors that gets a piece of whatever is there to split up. Okay. Yeah. So – it would depend. It probably would not be the equivalent of six months mm-hmm. uh, pay and, and everything else. Or but, 60 days. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, 60 days. So um, do you think they're rolling the dice on that? Like with the thought that may, maybe they're not going to. I think they're lazy. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to say it. Like yeah, I think they yeah. just took what is the way we can just be done with this as quickly as possible and just kind of see what happens. And mm-hmm. I think that's what they did. And what's weird is this company has been through a real interesting five years. Mm-hmm. In the last five years, first of all, they made an acquisition of the Lane Furniture brand, which is what they go to market under, if anybody's familiar with that. Um, a couple of years ago, they had a huge turnover at the top 
of the company in terms of the, the some C-level turnover. They got rid of like five guys, replaced them with one. Yeah. It's kind of a unique situation. The other thing is when you look at this marketplace with sort of textiles in general and furniture in particular, in 2020, everybody had a bad year, right? Mm-hmm. But also everybody was trapped at home. So they were wanted all this furniture mm-hmm. because they're like, we're going to be here. Let's order some stuff. Created this huge back order within the industry. If you try to get any furniture during that time, you understand what was going on there. It, so there's all this pent up demand. Then, so anticipating being able to fulfill these orders, a lot of these furniture manufacturers tooled up. This company even hired people during this time. Mm-hmm. Spent a bunch of money on logistical support in terms of hiring drivers. And then they realized man, we've got all this stuff, all these orders. We can't get it out. Like we have labor issues. We've got higher gas prices. All of a sudden, the stuff that we promised at a certain price is costing us more now to build it because of inflation and Mm -hmm. material costs. So they did. They got caught. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that you can see falling under this unforeseen dynamic. But the reality is in both of these other cases, they issued worn orders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They went to these states and said, this is going to happen. So the fact that they didn't do it here sooner Again, I just think they're being lazy. And it's, I wish it was more dynamic or more complex than that, but that's what it feels like. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting here is when we looked at the textile market, that was one of those that we thought would really benefit from a lot of these reshoring efforts, bringing people closer to the market. Mm-hmm. The reality is it's been more of a nearshoring thing. There's a lot of furniture and textile facilities now being built in Central America to still leverage a lot of that lower cost labor. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and you can see here, it's really impacting the American manufacturing um, pretty dramatically. I also did see a couple of cool stories for some of the area or some of the local manufacturers in these areas mm-hmm. reaching out to these workers. Oh, that's now, cool. it's not 2,000 jobs, but yeah. it's a dozen here. <laughs> it's 30 there. So there hopefully is some support. You know, one of the uh, the spokespeople for one of these surrounding companies said, hey, we're neighbors. We're in the same business. Let's see what we can do to help. Yeah. Now, again, when you've got 500 people losing their job and you've got 12 openings, that's not great but it's something. it's something and it's a proactive approach that was cool to see. I don't, I guess I hope it was <clears throat> maybe a lazy. I, I hope that they were up to zero hour and that's why the text, the text came just before midnight. And I hope that they were sitting there in an office trying to crunch numbers and just figured we can't have one more day. You know, we can't do one more day. I don't know, but that's just me being optimistic. It was probably, they probably figured out, Hey, if we send this out around midnight, we're not going to take as much flack because people are going to see it at all different times and we can kind of put out fires as needed. Well, see, I think it's weird, though, too, because one of the things they mentioned was all of the on the road drivers that were everyone was yeah. out there at the time. Yeah. They had tons of trucks out there with inventory. If you get ahead of this a little bit, you make sure everything stops going out. Right. So mm-hmm. you don't have that logistical nightmare to deal with as well. Mm-hmm. I think they had one, one driver who tried to make off with a truckload of stuff. It was. Yeah, it was. So. A couple of points. The first you had mentioned uh, about the turnover. So according to Furniture Today, in June, the company fired the CEO, CFO, and executive vice president of sales and hired, uh, replaced him with one person from a competitor. And you're right. The company asked drivers to immediately, quote, return equipment, inventory, and delivery documents, regardless of whether or not they've been complete, whether or not they had completed their delivery. And first of all, I think, Right. I'm going to bring it back. Like you just said, you're not paying me anything. I know where I'm going to park this. But then I saw the story of one employee, a 37-year-old Aubrey Audrey Garth, who went and removed a company vehicle from a Mississippi location. And then she was arrested for arrested and charged with grand larceny. So while you think, hey, the company's going under, you know, let's get what we can. 
maybe leave the cars, you know, take no, some stationery. Normally you would loot in this case is what you're saying? Well, I'm just, I, well, it's always difficult. We've seen, we've seen, uh, we've had friends, uh, former colleagues in situations where they call, hold a meeting and say, you have 15 minutes to get out the door, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and then they never, the company does only shuts the door and never comes back for anything. Um, but the other part was people couldn't even collect their belongings. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even go in there. So they told people as soon as the property manager can provide a safe and orderly process for former employees to come and gather their belongings, they will do so. We are not certain of the time frame for this, but they're going to communicate it proactively. They told uh, company or employees in an email. That's just, I understand it's probably not a lot, but when you have your own space at an office in a locker, you typically have things with sentimentality or that are personal sure. to you. Yeah. And you want to get those back. And it's like, come on, if you can do anything for me, at least give me the couple photos of my kids that I have in there. Well, no kidding, right? You know, it's just everything, every way this was handled is just all bad. All, all bad. bad. Like uh, a case study in what not to do in every aspect. And I guess, Jeff, you're right. The silver lining is that at least it looks like some of these people will hopefully land on their feet with other people in the area looking for manufacturing labor. All right. Well, before we move on to in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm David Manti, and I want you to register now for a new video podcast on how manufacturers are using augmented reality. Joining me is Mike Bradford, and he's going to talk about how, if anything, augmented reality makes manufacturers seem more tech-savvy. How's that working, Mike? The image of manufacturing quite often, particularly younger younger employees, is just, it's not cool, it's dirty, it's whatever. Uh, with the use of HoloLens or other technologies to do augmented reality, all of a sudden this is new technology. It's fun to use, it's exciting, it's interesting, and it gives manufacturers a much more tech-savvy and interesting image, particularly for younger workers. And we're back. Even though you just heard from me talking about our new video podcast for, with Dassault Systems, December 8th, 1 p.m. Central. Register below. We'll see you there. Ask some questions. We'll get a t-shirt. Are we out of t-shirts? Mm-mm. We got t-shirts. All right. My In Case You Missed It this week, one of the stories that maybe wasn't as popular but could still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward, I chose a story from Hyundai. Hyundai is going to rebuild its original 1974 Pony Coupe concept. In 1974, Hyundai was about seven years old. The car maker contacted Italian automotive designer Giorgetto Giugiaro to design Korea's first mass-produced car. He had to make five prototypes, including one coupe. When Giugiaro was working, Hyundai previewed this pony at the Turin Motor Show. Car enthusiasts loved it. They were excited over the car's geometric lines, wedge nose, the overall look. And I know you look at this thing and you're like, they were excited about that. It was a different time. The pony was going to be sold in North American and European markets and was about to enter mass production in 1981 when the recession killed the project. Well, this week, Hyundai announced a new project to rebuild the 1974 Pony Coupe concept and they hired GFG Style to do the work. GFG is a design studio or design firm that was founded 
by Giorgetto and his son, Fabrizio Giorgiaro. And that's just a cool and sweet story. The New Pony will debut next spring. And if this thing looks familiar, it's because the old Pony Coop concept was the source of inspiration when Giorgetto worked on the DeLorean DMC-12 in the early 80s. Oh, man. There were a lot of people online just chirping over, stolen, I've seen it before, this is the DeLorean, stolen. And I was just like, actually, this came first by the same guy. And then, you know, you can understand if he borrowed a little bit for the DeLorean, you know, they kill your baby, you want to bring it back. Uh, I don't know if either of you guys had a chance to look at this. I understand in context, you got to put it in context of the time because you look at that car now and you're like, you're going to do that again? All right. But the pony nameplate ran from 1975 to 1990. And the prototype's design not only inspired the DeLorean DMC-12, but it's also inspired future vehicles like Hyundai's Ionic 5 and the Envision 74 hydrogen hybrid development vehicle. So it's kind of interesting to me when you see these old projects that never really got off the ground and they still have a lasting legacy for the automaker. Jeff, what'd you think about the pony? Not for me. (laughs) Um, I mean, I can see, you know, people have sweet spots for all different types of vehicles for their own different reasons. Man, I don't know about this one though. It's just just the design. It is not an attractive vehicle. I I guess I don't get it either. If they're going to go this whole two door sedan type of approach, it's like a two door DeLorean station wagon. Okay, but nobody wants sedans anymore. (laughs) Like we've been over this. Like we ran a story. I'm sure we'll be talking about next week about the cars going away in 2023. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, This just seems like one that would. There's a reason they haven't made this thing for 30 years. I feel like this might be a limited release. Yeah, like I said, there's enthusiasts out there for all sorts of stuff. Um, I guess there's a, it's out there for this one, too. I <laughs> Boy, I do not get it. Um, I can't wait. I hope I get you in Secret Santa because we're going to wrap a bow. <laughs> <laughs> Are you getting one of those huge carbos that we were talking huge about earlier? Huge carbo and Jeff's getting a pony. <laughs> oh, Jeff's always wanted a pony. <laughs> Anna, do you have as much zest for the 1974 pony is Jeff. I don't have as much hatred for it, but um, it is funny to me that you you can see like these models must have uh, a champion. What did it go down? Okay. Uh, oh, more oh. water. <laughs> there was an audible gasp in the studio, and we didn't understand, but it was. Uh, I thought the live producer. stream went down, but no. Yeah, we thought the stream went down again, but it was really just the producers responding to Mark Waterman, who's watching us live, that says, <laughs> time for the pony to go to the glue factory. I'm with you, Mark. Jeff would prefer the glue. <laughs> it's actually, it's coming back from the glue factory. They're, you know, they're re articulating no, it. No, just let it go. Yeah. Don't try to. I can don't, get it there. Don't, I'll get it nope, there. Nope. Uh, so, Anna, do you think so, that this should have such a grim demise as Mark? <laughs> no, but I mean... Obviously, some of these vehicles that come back from the dead, they just have one or two champions that are like determined to make it happen. I mean, how many recessions have we had that have killed vehicles and then, um, you know, a handful of them come back from the dead and inexplicably mm-hmm. like why the Hummer was reproduced yeah. as an EV? Why, like, that, that EV we don't know. Gremlin. EV yeah, Gremlin's like, coming. I, yeah, the, the DeLorean, now this thing, like, I don't know. I don't 
so somebody must have like the loudest voice in the room and is just like, like with the talks Hummer and the DeLorean, there was like a social cultural dynamic there. Like there was no, no pony. <laughs> dynamic. The, I mean, the ponies got a loose tie. They could probably really play on the loose ties to the DeLorean. Maybe they saw some of the fanfare around that and thought they could tap into it. Maybe the pony mm. will be an EV because I, you know, we talked about it weeks ago, but I saw, I see like a real niche there for, these exotic dead brands to come back as an EV and have a small audience, depending on what the automaker is looking to accomplish. I like that as their tagline, pony, a loose tie to the DeLorean. (laughs) It really works. Not quite a Mustang. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Back from the glue factory, the pony. (laughs) So maybe not as many people on, but I mean, I'm not going to buy it, but I just thought it was, it was also every once in a while, you get to see a story where, a person gets to finish a project. You know, this is what, 40, 50 years ago. He was working on it. He was a young designer at the time. This is one of his going to be his one of his first breaks in the automotive industry and just cut it dead. Um, so I don't know. And I think it's kind of sweet that, you know, him and his son are going to rebuild it. We'll see if they sell any. Jeff, you're in case you missed it this week. Yeah, I think this one, the headline really caught my eyes for a number of reasons. But mine was a story on San Francisco allowing police to deploy lethal robots. Yeah. Which you'll probably have conflicted feelings about, right, David? I Mm -hmm. mean, you don't want to upset your future overlords, but at the same time. We're not lethal yet. These are your brothers. So Mm -hmm. basically the gist of this story is San Francisco has these robots, and it came to a vote because they had received the funding to use these robots potentially. Now, they are not armed with guns. They're basically provided for, um, given different explosive munitions, yeah. if you will, grenades, they don't have things guns. like that. They're just bombs. Yeah, they're basically robotic bombs that police are allowed to use in extreme situations where it can save, um, you know, avoid putting police officers in bad situations. Basically, caught my eye for a couple of different reasons because we've seen this come up in different municipalities. New York said no. We've mm-hmm. seen in some countries for border control that these have been utilized, and there they actually do have guns. Um, the fact that it was San Francisco really blew me away. That was surprising. The fact that they would want this, especially if you read more into the article, just across the way in Oakland, they said no to the same <laughs> the same legislation. And nothing against the good people of Oakland, but if you've been to San Francisco and you've been to Oakland, you would think the municipality that would be more likely to use armed robots would be Oakland, not San Francisco. So it was surprising there, and it's caused a lot of debate. The big thing is, again, it will be up to law enforcement to determine when they can use these to uh, potentially scale down a threat. Yeah. It's interesting to me because they seem to get around it by saying it's a lethal robot, but it's still piloted by a human. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a slippery slope. I, I'm caught on both sides because I am all for removing um, law enforcement, supporting law enforcement, okay. taking them out of dangerous situations when applicable. I don't understand how this is the best way to do that yeah. because you're still, you're not even talking about a drone and they're taking pictures, getting data. You're talking about basically, yeah, a robotic bomb and mm-hmm. they're going in with grenades or some other sort of munition or excuse me, explosive. So again, I, I mean, and I don't think they're looking at just like throwing smoke so the SWAT team can get in there or something else. They're, they're lethal. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what it's lethal force. So it's, it's an odd one. And it's, it, like I said, the, if they can get this passed in San Francisco, there's got to be other advocates for this technology and this approach to law enforcement that have just got to be, you know, kind of licking their lips, ready to go. Because mm-hmm. there's definitely some 
less liberal-minded municipalities out there that might embrace this. And it could just really lead to a different application for robotics and a different approach to a lot of law enforcement agencies. So I, I, it, it opens it opens the door to some things that I could see becoming problems down the road. Mm-hmm. Did this, did the article, I didn't get a chance to read this one. Did it go into specific examples of when it would be used? Because if you tell me it's going to be essentially like a, ro- a robot they send in for, um, take, uh, for bomb disposal, you know, when you told me that you needed these sort of lethal capabilities for that, I understand that, you know, I can make that connection more, but did they say anything about what type of types of applications they would be used in? Yeah, nothing, sp- nothing specifically. I, I think reading between the lines, I think you're looking at situations where you've got, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more situations where gunmen are taking control of facilities. There's mm-hmm. not necessarily anybody in there, but they're either in their home, they're in a school, they're in someplace else. So you could, as opposed to trying to snipe them or storm the building, so to speak, you could send this in to take them out. Okay. So it did use one example of, so the first time a robot was used to deliver explosives in the U.S. was back in 2016 in Dallas when an armed robot um, killed a sniper that had ambushed and uh, killed five other people or five uh, police officers. So I I don't know. It's a... You can find an application for all this stuff. Yeah. It's trusting the individuals in charge to make sure they understand the right time to use it. Mm-hmm. And then that is always going to be up for debate, which yeah. is why this opens up a bunch of doors that, boy, you, you just, you have to be careful. And the other thing is you would hate for some of these applications to sort of take down the whole technology. You know, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about with electric vehicles and it's not, not apples to apples. I understand that, but we have, we want to educate people about these are the things that take away from the battery's ability to perform at its highest level. Mm-hmm. But that also feeds into some of these concerns about electric vehicles. Well, we're worried about employing robots in other areas where they can be helpful from a law enforcement perspective. But this is the example that gets the most headlines that mm-hmm. can put the damper on a lot of other funding that we could use for military and law enforcement, robotics, drones that would be more useful mm-hmm. and could not necessarily mm-hmm. in the same context. Anna, what were your thoughts on the use of lethal robots? Yeah. I mean, I think you guys have all said it. It's uh, it's alarming to consider um, if this were to be misused, and I know that the militarization of police is something that's sort of a contentious issue. Um, to Jeff's point, if it's if there are if there's technology involved in a robot that could enter a situation like that with an active shooter and also scan the area, know that there's no one there, you know, mm-hmm. identify you know who you need to identify and and keep a, a person out of danger. That's one thing. But again, you'd hate to see this misused. And then what are the results of that? So it's uh, I know it's it's one of those things where it's like you want to believe that it would be helpful, but it is hard to believe that it it could or would not be misused. Yeah. Sometimes when it's the thing that's going to lead to the thing, you need to consider what that next thing might be and then, Mm -hmm. you know, determine whether or not it's of a greater good. Anna. What was your In Case You Missed It this week? All right. My In Case You Missed It is about canoe, <laughs> which is a- You really held the two O's. Canoe. Yeah. I feel like you have to say it that way because there's two O's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't- Yeah. Just, no. It, because it's O-O and not O-E, yeah. you really got to hold it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Normally, I say canoe. Um, so canoe has uh, is, a, is an auto uh, startup, as you know. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Canoe has announced that it's delivered its new light tactical vehicle to the United States Army for analysis and demonstration in fulfillment of a contract that was awarded in July of this year. So the LTV is engineered for extreme environments and includes stealth configurations. It's designed to be durable with a focus on safety um, and in incorporates carbon Kevlar for strength without adding weight. As with all canoe vehicles, the LTV is designed for pas passenger ergonomics, taking body motion and height in consideration, as well as multitask components. So it can be converted from a flatbed uh, to a pickup and back, a cargo vehicle, all that stuff. Um, it's very convertible. It can, it can carry lots of stuff, um, tactical equipment, anything that's required in the field. Um, it's, I think, a pretty cool development uh, for a startup like Canoe, where we weren't exactly sure where they were going to go. Um, mm -hmm. They were very, at the outset, um, you know, they were talking about logistics capabilities. They're talking about um, uh, recreation type applications for this, mm -hmm. which, you know, they still may explore in other areas. But f for this to be used... Um, it, for a military purpose is kind of cool, especially because it's a newer company. My concern, of course, is with field maintenance. And, you know, obviously this is built on a proprietary platform. <laughs> I don't know in the field if people are going to know how to repair it, mm -hmm. if there's it's an different. issue. Um, so that was the first thing I thought of there. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully the the training part of this is is a long period so they can figure that out. And if they can, then I think, you know, it's some of these newer to market automakers, um, who aren't afraid to take some risks can really do some cool stuff from a design perspective. They're not worried as much about the consumer market. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there for, as we've seen all these automakers pop up in the last few years, some of the ways that they can sort of diversify, but I'm interested to see what this can do. We've talked about canoe on both sides because when it was a new automaker without any partnerships, it didn't look good. And right, it wasn't yeah. canoe. Canoe was the one that, all the executives walked out on, right? Yeah. Okay. Then they signed the deal with Walmart and it looked like, you know, Walmart bought 4,500 vehicles and we're like, okay, that's how, you know, you get a fleet deal in there. That's how you might be able to offer a consumer product at some point. I was excited by this story because it seemed like another deal that could give Canoe a little bit of design and development road as they're trying to make some of those more recreational vehicles that, to be honest, all of us kind of laughed at the first time we saw, you know, a little bit more design and development time to become a reality. Um, Jeff, were you as optimistic or uh, is this canoe a one and done here for the Army? Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is not going to go. Um, <clears throat> number one, first of all, they're going to have to do something about all that glass. Yeah. That is not tactical. Okay, you don't want to be that wide open. So they're going to need to do something with those windows and that windshield. Um, you, so that's number one right there. The other thing is it, because it's for an analysis and dot demonstration to potentially fulfill a contract, I think this maybe gives Canoe a little bit of time to raise some more funds, get some more private equity, get some more venture capital in there, in there, see if they can make this a go. You know, we, we, when we talked about them this summer, I kind of felt like they were on their last leg. The Walmart thing did the same thing. It gave them some time and some breath and maybe that'll be the route they end up going. I, I could be way off on this, but when I look at it, I just don't see it filling a military need long-term. I think the stuff that they got coming from Oshkosh and some other people like that mm -hmm. just fit the need better. Um, from, you know, Anna brought up the maintenance perspective. I think that's something that all facets of society, including the military, are going to have to understand better. It brings up an interesting point with the electric vehicle transition uh, in terms of a different type of training 
for mm-hmm. technicians and people who can fix and repair. For sure. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. And the thing is, I'm not rooting against Canoe. Yeah. I'm just being honest. When I look at it, it does not look like in its current state, mm-hmm. this would work. If they're looking at taking this platform and they see some things that they like about the design, um, okay, maybe. But it's not going to look like the canoe you get off the street or you can buy commercially when it goes to the army. They're going to test it, Jeff. Just this, give, it, <laughs> give it some time to test. It it looks it looks less like a flatbed truck than kind of a bulky Gator. Do you kind of feel like though this had to be the last place they wanted to put this vehicle? Like the way they were promoting it, it's like yeah, kid in the outdoors. It sort of had a little bit of a hippie vibe to oh, it. Oh, it did. It was like a family I mean, room on wheels. Yeah. yeah. yeah just it, everyone hang out. I liked that thing, by the way. I don't, I think you're misremembering. Oh, okay. The, the, the laughter was not coming from me. Oh, okay. I just, you know, it, it was a EV startup. So I just figured it was, you know, universally panned. No, I was just saying canoe <laughs> and giving it a high five. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, I think there approval. was somebody in the offices that canoe going, I guess we'll go to the army if we have to do the military, I guess. Is this a, you know, they answered an RFP and they said yes. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> do you th- hey, do you, Brown. The, the intern put in the paperwork just on a. Do you think that's really glass? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's see-through is my point. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Because it is going to. And that does their thing. Like with the other ones too, like the roof is, is see-through. Yeah. It's all transparent. So they're going to need to do some things there. Um, they have stealth configurations, Jeff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> all right. You've made me, I've done a complete 180 on all this. Right, I am stil- on board now. I knew it. Their okay. stealth configuration is that it's all glass and people are just going to be so shocked. <laughs> it's like, interesting. <laughs> Why though? I can see all eight people in there very clearly. <laughs> all and right. what they're hauling. Well, before we get out of here this week, uh, let's do our final thoughts. Anna, what is your final thought this week? All right, so I mentioned last week that I was reading a book about time travel by accident, and um, I finished it over the weekend, and I have to say that even though I've had a longstanding um, problem with time travel, uh, (laughs) even back to the future, so don't even ask, uh, I finished the book and I thought it was pretty good. So it made my brain like explode just like silently a little bit at the end, but it was worth it. So I feel like maybe you can teach an old dog new tricks because I I did it. It's a it slippery a challenge, and I did it. Slippery time travel uh, slope. What uh, what was the name of the book again? Uh, if you were to go back in time to yesterday, I told you that already. It's called The Sea of Tranquility. I was trying to share it for everybody listening. I know what it is, Anna. I'm Tinto. trying to just tee it up for you. Sorry, I was trying to like sneak in a. Yeah, no, okay. you got it. Yeah. You got it. Didn't mean to. You David got is totally it. over that, by the way. Didn't mean to He's lay just out. Just gonna move right now. I'm yeah. gonna. Oh yeah, we're close enough to the end that I can't. You know what? Move if on. I could, when it happens midstream, I'm just done for. No. <laughs> if I could take it back, I would. Oh, don't give me your disingenuous take backs. Oh, I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings. That's okay. I don't have feelings. If there was a time machine here. I would get in. <laughs> I would go back to two minutes ago. <laughs> it's all good. Read Sea of Tranquility and send your time travel book recommendations to Anna. She's all in now. No, I'm not all in. I I just, but I did survive. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, my final thought. I had two final thoughts this week. One was gross, and another is something of interest that I want to see if anyone else is experiencing. So, um. T- When it is cold in a Wisconsin winter, there are a lack of options. You know, it's not like you can just take your kids to a park 
sometimes because it's so cold. So I thought maybe we'll check out a McDonald's play place to see if that would be a suitable, because I went to a, a lot of them as a kid. You yeah. know, we would go to a, yeah. a McDonald's Playland or they used to have them at Hardy's too, which was really just a ball pit and a giant metal slide, but still mm-hmm. we loved it. And I thought, oh man, this would be great. There's one right by our house. We walk into it. First of all, I have not been in a McDonald's in a long time. Mm-hmm. And the ordering from a kiosk is a hot nightmare mess. Like, uh... It, Come on. No, well, I mean, especially with kids where you need no pickles and onions and you need no ketchup or just mustard. And like uh, it, for all the customizations that you have to do when you're ordering with kids, logistical nightmare, have someone at the counter. Anyway, that's not the gross part. Um, the kids go into the playlands. They're playing. Um, my wife's watching them. There are a bunch of kids there playing around. I have the no trays because uh, this location has gone trayless. What? Which is a new thing, too. Really? So they just hand you the bags. And I'm like holding bags and Happy Meals and drinks. I'm like, I bought, like I, I kick into the door. And as soon as I walk in the door, I just go white because there are mice crawling <gasps> along the sides of the floor. And I like look at the mice. And then I look at all my kids and my kids are running around on their hands. And, you you know, you take your shoes off in the playland yeah. and the hands are just on the ground and on the slides and in the mouth. And I'm just like, and all the kids are like hugging and touching the ground. And it was vile. Oh. It was vile. Ooh. And I reached out to McDonald's and I received, because I, I had wanted my money back yeah. because I was so like, we sat down and I tried to, um, you know, the mouse went into a hole. I tried to get past it. I couldn't eat. I'm like, I'll just leave it in the bag and maybe try to eat it later. And then two mice kept peeking out of this hole, just looking at me. Why are you still there? I just like, because the kids are having fun. I'm like, either way, we're bleaching them when we get home. And uh, so then I stomp at this mouse and (laughs) this woman like looks up from her phone. She's like, you see a mouse? Did you see a mouse? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Why? She's like, oh, it's all over the Internet. This thing is infested with mice. And I was like, why are you here? And uh, why are you so casual? About yeah, this? just like she just goes back to her phone. Mice, right? And uh, so I take all the food because that was the other thing is I'm like, if I leave the food on the wrappers, you know, it hasn't touched anything and anything that touched the surface, I just burned. But I just wrapped everything up, threw it away. And I just reached out because I just wanted a refund. We yeah. didn't eat the food because of their disgusting, vile location. We're not even going to talk about the hair that was in the fries. Um, Whoa. And when I reached out to McDonald's for it, I got a salad. We'll look into it. And I replied, I will, I will report you to the health department because if you can see one or two, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. And it was just vile. Um, So if you get a chance, stay away from McDonald's. Now that you you already would, I just, you know, well, that McDonald's. Yeah. Which McDonald's? Tell us later. Yeah. No, it was the one closest to my house at that. Well, because uh, another thing is whenever we ran out of coffee, that was just Carrie's go-to coffee yeah. location. She's like, we can never go here again. No. We can't go to the businesses next to it because we know. We know. It was just disgusting. Clean it up. Uh, the other the other short final thought was putting up the Christmas lights uh, over the holiday. It was a beautiful week. Thanksgiving week. We had a little bit of time off. Getting the Christmas lights on. I want to know if anyone else has experienced this. I have... Christmas lights that have all been purchased within the last five years. Most, most of them within the last one to three years. Mm -hmm. I got three strands on the house and then I have three strands where a quarter of it is just dead. 
Like you plug it in and just, it's not like you're replacing lights. Like what? David, where do you buy your lights? Oh. Menards. You got a light You buy them out of the bargain bin, don't you? No, I buy them off the shelf. There's like, it's not like, no. David. I don't buy bar. No, because. the, the, The directions were not in English, were they? They were in English. Jeff, they were in English. Jeff buys his lights from the Sharper Image. Yeah. How? Yeah. What kind of hoity-toity lights are you buying? Well, better ones than what you're getting. Apparently, no, because so, I don't have that issue. So no, I was talking to somebody else in this office, producer Eric. He shall be named now. Same exact experience where the lights have been fine for years. And you know what? I don't. I don't penny. Pinch. Are they LEDs? I don't penny pinch when it comes to lights because I have this fear of like one catching fire and then finding a leaf and then burning us all in our sleep. We all have our anxieties. But I feel like if at least two people in our small office are experiencing this, this has to be something that, you know, there are just there's a batch of bad lights out there. It's widespread. Okay, but this this you can't fault me for jumping to that. That is a little bit of your M.O. Um, on the Black Friday one ninety nine cent lights. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll take a chance on a bargain from time to time, but mostly from that's, time to time. But mostly that's if I, <laughs> I like if it's so exotic, I can't believe it exists, and I'm like, I can't believe they made this. I need one. You know, Christmas lights. That's something where, especially, redo the icicle lights, and they, I want them. They all have to be the same length, and I you got to buy them all from the same manufacturer so that way they match, right. and you can daisy chain them together. But I was just, and now, now we have half a house that's lit and just every day, it's like a reminder because it's been so cold. I haven't put up the rest of the lights and it's just like, we're going to only have half a house with lights this year, isn't it? I'm like, I'm going to get up there, but it's just, you know, it's cold. You know, it gets dark earlier. <laughs> Your voice just got so high. I know. It's uncomfortable. But I want to know if anyone else is uh, struggling with either rat infested McDonald's <laughs> near their homes or... This problem with obviously cheap light manufacturing. Oh, Mark th- Mark is there for me. LED lights are DC and corrode quickly. Not like the uh not like incandescent AC lights. Thank you, Mark. Two years max. Oh my god! It's, uh, I got I've got on Whoa. everything's gone. <clears throat> Man. <sighs> they just replace the, the bulbs. Send in the killer robot. No, because I think it's it's the wiring that's corroding. Okay. To McDonald's, yes. Clearly. Oh, send the killer yeah. robot to McDonald's. You're right, Mark. You're right. Whole place has got to go. My God, save! Don't save the kiosks. Uh, Jeff, owner of premium lights. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I'm just a better, better an, electrical shopper, an installer o- than overall you. higher quality Christmas decorations. What's your final thought? <laughs> Apparently, buy better lights. Never ate mouse. <laughs> See you next week. Never ate mouse McDonald's. Is what it sounds like. Gross. I'm just like. The, they ruined the one thing of like fast food that held true is that the McDonald's fry was the best and it's just gone forever now. Yeah. That took the kids to the playground a lot. Yeah. The winter. That was, yeah, it was a go-to. Oh, it was just, anyway, it's gone. It's just the one. It's gone. Yeah, it's just yours. But just I mean, there's a, there aren't a lot of play, like play places anymore. Mm-mm. Just, mm. I'll have to go to some Chicago oasis. From the Middleton. Yeah. There's one in Middleton? Yeah. It's a nice one. Okay. Yeah. We'll take the trek. No mice. We'll see. We'll see. Mm. Yeah. Fingers crossed. What do you got for us, Jeff? I'm going to go right to the polling question. I just can't top either one of those things you brought up. I don't think so. I'm sorry. Um, So last week, the question was, which of the following tech companies, former employees, would you be most interested in targeting? Uh, We had some good feedback. Some of the usual suspects chimed in here. Jeff, uh, 
option thought his thought was to take the folks from Microsoft. He said they're experienced people. Our experienced people from any of the companies would have skills that could translate to our organization. He's not familiar with some of them, but uh, he does see some um, opportunities there. So that was Jeff. I'm um, going with Microsoft. Um, Ralph chimed in. He said Amazon. He said the data mining would be helpful in our industry as we are in a mature segment. And sometimes that type of skill set is difficult to come by. And the uh, the question was based off of the story last week, which of these recently laid off employees from these companies, would you prefer to have at your facility? Yeah, because we had one of the, the vehicle manufacturers, I think it was Land Rover, Jaguar, reaching out specifically targeting um, yeah. laid off um, individuals from tech companies. Um, the last uh, comment here was from Larry. Um, he was the with the majority of folks who said, I don't want any of them. Give me a tech school grad. <laughs> yeah. um, he felt that all of these company employees have been so indoctrinated into the culture of those companies that you'd rather start from scratch and show employees how to do it right. So and that was point. a prevailing thought. So appreciate everybody chiming in. David, your friend Chris also had some input. Chris? Well, yeah. He said, Larry was there just earlier. Relax. Larry's just there for us. Calm down. What do you got, you, Chris? You all right? Yeah. You ready? I'm fine. He said, maybe if we tried enticing them with cowboy candy. No, not you, Dave. Hmm. Chris. Are you Chris? I am Are not. Are you Chris. answering the survey? I am as not Chris. Chris. You can email him right there. Mm hmm. Chris. So, mm hmm. Mr. Cowboy Candy. Chris, my cowboy candy. Candy, what's his last name? He tells me. Where's his house? No. <laughs> <laughs> going to put some bad lights up on his house for Christmas? Yeah. I'll, I'll ship you some uh, new Christmas lights. Like new. Like new. Uh, so do we have a new polling question this week? We, we do, David. <laughs> Imagine that. Let's transition right away from Chris. Ooh. All right. So looking at the stories from this week, my question is this. Long term, which of the following do you feel is the biggest potential upside or the ability to have the most significant positive impact going forward? You know, we talked about GAC's Barchetta concept car, Caterpillar's Tucson Proving Ground, just the boring company in general. Mm. Do they have some, uh, some potential bigger upsides there? The armed robots for police officers, Canoe's tactical vehicle, or, and I have to throw this one in there, the new pony. New pony. Landslide winner right there. So which of those do you believe could just have some real upside in terms of contribution to their industry or be one of those things that leads to the thing? Come this time next year, we're all going to be in ponies. Ponies? I'm calling it now. Yep, we're going to be pony strong in this office. You say so. Fit with your cowboy candy routine. That's right. I'm going to eat my morning cowboy candy in, in my pony, pony on my way to work. Nice. Yeah. We'll debate nice. whether or not the chaps are coming, but definitely yeah. the hat. All yeah. right. <laughs> Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters to make sure you get the podcast delivered to your inbox first. Also, make sure to subscribe to at IN Magazine on YouTube and join us live every Thursday. It's going to be at 2.30 next week. So we'll see you at 2.30 next Thursday. Thursday. For Jeff Frankie and Anna Wells, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.